But we're just saying that in the time of trouble, the Lord will guide us. Yeah. Not sure exactly when that song was written. It seems like it'd be fitting today, and tomorrow, and next week, and last week, and last month, and next year. Right. Like there's always trouble surrounding God's people. And yet the Lord wants us to have hope and to have joy because in the midst of trouble, in the time of trouble, he will guide us. As we've continued to say over and over and over at this church that the main way we think the Lord guides us is through his word. Right? And so we turn every week to his word. And this week we, we, we come to a new book, the book of Nahum, as we begin a new series, a kind of four-week series, a short series, through the minor prophets. Now the minor prophets are not called minor because they are less important than other prophets. They're called minor because they're smaller books. So uh, in your books, in, in your Bibles, you'll see the minor prophets start at, let me get it, get it right, Hosea, maybe, uh, and then go on. But it's 12 minor prophets. And so minor prophets are just differentiated from major prophets like Ezekiel or Isaiah, right? Those books are like 60, 50 chapters long, right? Uh, the, the book we'll look at this week is three chapters. The book we'll look at next week is three chapters. The book we'll look at the week after that is three chapters, right? So these are smaller books, right? We'll try to do one book each week as we go through the minor prophets. Now, you might be wondering, okay, you know, it's, it's sunny outside, it's nice, right? It's enjoyable. Uh, let's preach something more exciting than the prophets, right? I might have those kind of thoughts sometimes. But but, but again, as a church, we just come to understand that all Scripture all right. is God, God's Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and so all Scripture, the Bible tells us, is useful for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. And we need to be trained in righteousness. Amen. And so we need to hear the Bible. You've been with us for the beginning, since the beginning of the year, we've been going through Matthew. We've been doing that several years now, working through Matthew. And we can probably go at a, a much faster pace if we went straight through Matthew, right? But we believe that the whole Bible is good for us. And so I want to expose us to every single genre of Scripture, from the Gospels to the Prophets, from the, the writings to the apocalyptic literature. We want to go through all the Bible because all the Bible is good for us. We need the, the sweet, right? And we need the, the solid food, the meat and potatoes of the gospel. We also need the vegetables of the prophets. And so this morning we will uh, sit, uh, spend our time in God's word looking at one of these prophetic books. If you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Nahum. Nahum. All right. If you need to know where it is, flip to Psalms. And you go to Proverbs. And you go to Ecclesiastes. Just keep flipping. Right, you'll find it sooner or later. Right, and why Nahum this this morning? Why do we start at Nahum? Well, I'm 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 not creative at all. A couple years ago, we started at Jonah. Last summer, we were in Micah. After Micah is Nahum. Right. right. Okay. So we're just right. going through going through these. Right. It's not there's not some special formula here. Okay. Uh, let's look at the book of Nahum. Right. And instead of reading it all the way through, we're gonna go through it uh, piece by piece as we work our way through the book. So if you in the book of Nahum. Look there at verse 1. We read, An oracle concerning Nineveh, 
the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. We learn here that this book is from a man named Nahum whom we really know nothing about other than he's from Elkosh, probably a place in Judah. So we know where Nahum is from and we know that he's a prophet, someone who's been chosen by God as his instrument to deliver an oracle or prophecy. That's what that word means. And this oracle is concerning Nineveh, the great capital city of the great Assyrian Empire. Now, now when you hear Nineveh, you might remember back to another prophet before who had a, a prophecy concerning Nineveh, the prophet Jonah, whom we studied a few years ago. He also had a message to deliver to Nineveh about 100 years before Nahum. Jonah Wright wrote in the 8th century, mid-8th century B.C. Nahum is writing in the early to mid-7th century B.C. And if you remember anything about Jonah's ministry, he was reluctant to fulfill it. He was to go to Nineveh to tell of impending judgment, but he knew it would ultimately lead to Nineveh's repentance, which he did not want. And so Jonah delayed before ultimately going and preaching to Nineveh about its potential demise and to his displeasure, he proved to be right. Nineveh heard of God's impending judgment and they repented. Their king called on them to mourn in sackcloth and ashes and for them to turn from their sins and turn to God. But a lot can happen in a hundred years. By the time we get to Nahum, the capital city of Nineveh has turned back into a cesspool of sin. And the larger empire, Assyria, of which it was a part, has savagely and ruthlessly torn through nation after nation, establishing its dominance. One of the nations it's torn through is Israel. Assyria came into the northern kingdom Israel in 722 B.C., destroying it and taking its people captive into exile. But that did not quench Assyria's thirst for thorough conquering, for thorough control of every kingdom. And so 20 or so years later, after the the captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel, in 701 B.C., they came up against the southern kingdom of Judah. It was during the reign of, of Judah's king, Hezekiah at the time. That the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, came to depose him and drive all the inhabitants of Jerusalem away. You might remember the story as it's told in Isaiah uh, chapters 36 and 37. Sennacherib threatened Judah and boasted to all its inhabitants that they best not trust in their king, Hezekiah. And they bet not trust in their God. For no one could stand up to him and his mighty army of the Assyrians. He, he says to the people of Judah in Isaiah chapter 36, verses 15 and 16, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, 
Make your peace with me and come to me. Such was the pride, the pomp of the Assyrian king. The Assyrian kingdom and the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, by the end of the 8th century. Just 50 years or so from the previous Assyrian king, clothing himself in sackcloth and ashes and calling his entire nation to cry out to God and to repent, the Assyrian king now in 701 BC was calling out against the Lord in rebellion. The Lord ultimately crushed Sennacherib and held a serious invasion of Judah off for a while. But Assyria would come again as Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, turned the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, away from the Lord and towards other nations, Assyria would come and take Judah captive. They didn't drive all the inhabitants away, but they made uh, Manasseh their kind of servant king, their little puppet king. And they made the lives of the, Judah, uh, the Judites, the people of Judah, miserable, suffering under Assyrian control. They stayed in their land, but Assyria kept their foot on the necks of the people of Judah, making their lives miserable. Now, that's the setting behind this second prophet from God, Nahum, coming with an oracle, a message concerning Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And, and here's what I think is the main thrust of Nahum's message. The main point of the book of Nahum and the main point of our sermon this morning. God will utterly wreck all who proudly oppose him and ultimately restore all who patiently trust in him. God will utterly wreck all who proudly oppose him and ultimately restore all who patiently trust in him. As we walk through this book together, I think we, we see three objectives that the prophet Nahum has for his audience, which will serve as the three points of the sermon. Nahum wants us, number one, to know God's character. Number two, Nahum wants us to see God's fury. And number three, Nahum wants us to trust God's care. Number one, know God's character. That's mainly chapter one. Number two, see God's fury. That's chapters two and three. And number three, trust God's care. Kind of the basic application of the whole book. Number one, know God's character. Look there at chapter one with me. After briefly establishing who he is and, and, and that he's writing concerning Nineveh in, in verse 1, notice the first thing Nahum wants the people of Nineveh and the people of Judah and the people of Prince George's County to know who God is. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. 
Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversary and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And Nahum's opening message about God is quite different from Jonah's closing words about him 100 years earlier. Jonah closed his book pouting about God's graciousness and mercy, his compassion towards the Ninevites. Those are the character traits that the Ninevites knew of God as they experienced his forgiveness in refusing to punish them. But here, Nahum wants the Ninevites, wants us to know of a jealous and vengeful God, a God who is wrathful. Are these two different people? I mean, has God gotten grumpy as time has passed? His old age made him more cranky? No, this is the same God who has always existed with the same attributes or perfections as he has always had. He is a God who is both merciful and gracious and jealous and vengeful. If this God sounds drastically different from the God we grew up learning about in Sunday school, or hearing priests in previous churches, or have imagined in our minds, then it's because the God we learned about and heard preached about and imagined is not the biblical God. The God of the Bible has revealed himself as one who is firm and forgiving, compassionate and condemning, just and jealous. Remember when God first entered into a covenant with the people of Israel. He commanded them to stay away from other gods, to serve and worship nobody but him. Why? Because he says in Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, jealousy can be a terrible trait in people. It's toxic when siblings fight with one another. Jealous that one has a toy that the other doesn't. Or that one gains the praise of parents that the other doesn't. It's toxic when co-workers scheme and clash. One jealous that the other got the promotion. Or the prized assignment. Or the cozy corner office. But it's totally different when a wife is jealous. That her husband is spending time texting old flings or sleeping with other women in the bed they share together. He better not say. He should not respond when confronted. Why are you jealous? We all understand that the woman has a right to be jealous. He belongs to her. Well, so it is with us and God. He made us, created us for his glory to exclusively be devoted to him. 
And it's not only for his glory, but for our good. You see, we never get the satisfaction and joy we were made to experience when we turn our backs on God in favor of something or someone else. And so God is jealous for his own glory when we fail to live for it. God is jealous for our good when something or someone else robs it from us. When you two-time God, he has a right to be jealous and to repay you for your actions. You will meet him in his fury, in his wrath. The Ninevites need to know who they're messing with. They've once again turned away from God after he'd previously been so merciful to them. They've now gone on to mercilessly mutilating others in a campaign to conquer the world. They set themselves up as if they were God, as if no one could contend with them. But Nahum opens up with a counter. Let me introduce you to the real God, jealous and vengeful against all his adversaries, wrathful against all his enemies. Vengeance is his, he says elsewhere. He will repay, he promises. We don't like to think of God in that way, do we? I don't like to think of God in that way. I mean, this week in preparing this message with with all the crushing news of, of school shootings and sexual abuse scandals, the God I wanted to meditate on and the God I wanted to preach about was the God we, we talked about Wednesday evening in 2 Corinthians, the, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Well, he is that. But as I read Nahum over and over and over this week, what I was freshly reminded of is that God wants us to remember these attributes as well. We need to know of God's wrath. Why? To comfort us. And knowing that evil ultimately won't go unchecked, God will repay evildoers, even if our legal system doesn't perfectly get it right. Unrepentant child abusers or murderers will be punished. But I need to know of God's wrathful and vengeful character. You need to know of it, not just as it relates to others, but to ourselves. I need to be reminded of the consequences of my own sin. Maybe it's not the headline-generating atrocities that, that make it on TV or the front page of the Post, but atrocities in God's eyes nonetheless. It's an atrocity in God's eyes when we go on social media and we post pics or post our thoughts and check over and over again fishing for likes. Or when we do some good deed and humbly tell others about it. We're really just searching for compliments. We're seeking our own glory and not God's, and he is jealous. It's an atrocity when we are harsh with our children or our spouses, rude or discourteous to employees or clients, gossiping about or bad-mouthing other members behind their backs feeling safe to do so because none of them are in a position to to do anything back to us. We need to know that the God who sees all is vengeful. He will repay even if others don't. 
We need to know God's character. All of it. Now, perhaps you've dismissed any talk of the vengeful, wrathful God we see here because you've been able to do you for so long without any repercussions. That may have been what the people of Nineveh thought. But Nahum reminds them, reminds us in verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger, but it's not that he never gets angry. Don't confuse his slowness for weakness. Isn't that what Jen just read for us, right? Don't count the slowness of God as if he can't do it, right? He is great in power, Nahum says. Sometimes that delay makes you think that God isn't able. Now, that delay is so you can, your butt can change and repent so that God don't have to do what he's able to do, right? Nahum says God is powerful. And one day he will demonstrate that power by no means clearing the guilty. You have a certainty of that? By no means will the guilty be clear. And God, Nahum goes on to show just how powerful this God is. I mean, he's powerful over all nature. Uh, verse 3, Nahum says that he is in the whirlwind and the storm. Uh, that heavy storm we got a few days ago on Friday is just a small sliver of the display of God's power. Verse 4 says he is able to even rebuke the sea and make the river dry. I mean, remember the Red Sea that stood before the people of Israel like an immovable obstacle from escape from Egypt. But God was so powerful that he pushed the waters of the sea to the side like he was sweeping up dust into a dustpan. Verse 5 says the, the stone-hard mountains that never move, those immovable mountains quake before God. The whole earth heaves and melts before him. So then, verse 6 asks, who possibly can withstand his indignation? Who can stand before the heat of his anger? The answer, absolutely no one. Nineveh has presented itself as the most powerful player in the ancient Near East, toppling kings and taking over kingdoms. But let me tell you about one you cannot beat, Nahum says. One you need to humble yourselves under. The Lord is his name. He is a jealous and avenging God, avenging and wrathful. Amen. But look at verse 7's assertion. The Lord is also good. Amen. That might seem like an oxymoron, considering the previous predications about it. But God's goodness is seen even in his judgment. Showing that as a good and just God, he must punish sin and sinners. But he's also good as a savior. He is a stronghold, verse 7 says, in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But, verse 8 says, he will make a complete end of his adversary. Friends, this is a good place to stop and, and just consider. Do you know this God? The biblical God. And do you know where you are in terms of your relationship with him? You see, because you cannot afford to get this relationship wrong. You might be able to live with a strained relationship with your parents. Or a rocky relationship with your boss or a complicated relationship with a significant other. 
All those things might bring some sense of anxiety and some sense of distress, but they won't bring utter disaster. But if you get this relationship wrong, if you're on the wrong end of this relationship, if you're not finding your refuge in God, but fighting in rebellion against God, then the Lord has promised that he will come against you with all vengeance and with all wrath. But you don't have to know God's judgment. You can know God's goodness in saving you. And it all depends on how you're related to him. It all depends on how you're related to his son. Jesus Christ is the way, the only way to have a right relationship with God. No one, Jesus says, comes to the Father except through me. God has sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to be the mediator between a holy God and a totally unholy, sinful creation like us. God should give us all of this wrath and judgment because we have all lived for and loved others besides God. But God has been so loving, so caring that he sent his son to be judged in our place. The wrath that we deserve was poured out on Christ, on the Messiah, on Jesus for us so that we might be reconciled to God. And so the question for us is, will we be reconciled today? Will you be reconciled to God today? In the face of who God is and what he will do to his enemies, will you turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation today? Friends, I know I say that every week, but it's not a rhetorical question. It is a real question that demands a real response in the face of a really wrathful God. Will you repent of your personal sins against this personally offended God today and give your life to him? If the answer is yes, come meet me right at that door afterwards. Let's talk about that. Do not leave here today as one of God's enemies. The Lord wants you to know and say it who he is so you can trust him. Don't reject him. Don't push him away. Why would you want to bring judgment on yourself? That's all rebelling against God will bring. Destruction. I mean, look at verse 9 here. As, as Nahum asked the Ninevites, what is it that you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. And he just said that in verse 8, didn't he? That God will end you. So why do you keep plotting against him? Why war against him? Your plans will never work. I mean, the Psalm 2 says, God laughs in derision against those who plot and plan against him. Like all your great efforts to confuse God or confound God or go against God is not causing God one bit of anxiety. He will end you. He laughs at you and not in a laughing manner. Yet in spiritual hardness and spiritual blindness, we keep on plotting against him. Verse 11 says, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord a worthless counselor. What does it mean to to plot against the Lord? It's probably not a direct attack against God. But but we see in Scripture that that God so associates himself with his people that a plot against them is a plot against him. Remember Jesus stopping Paul on the Damascus Road as he was plotting 
to go lock up and murder Christians. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Here, this one plotting against the Lord is probably the Assyrian king, likely plotting to do more and more evil against God's people, Judah, plotting to put his foot further on their necks. But God wants Nineveh to know that he takes it personally. As the vengeful and wrathful God, he will avenge his people. He tells the Assyrians in verse 14 that, that he will cut off their name, discontinue the Assyrian king's lineage, and cut off their false worship of other gods and carved images. He is, after all, a jealous God. But notice here, in, in the midst of all these promises of what God will do against his enemies, is what he will do for his people. It, it can be a little hard to see in verses 12 and 13 because he doesn't explicitly mention their name. But God is talking in verse, verses 12 and 13 to the people of Judah. Look there at, at verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they, the Assyrians, are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, Judah, for a short time, for, you, for your sins against me. I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. And then drop down to verse 15, a more explicit address. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. These are promises by God to Judah to be God for them, to punish and cut mighty Nineveh down, but to protect and to keep them. Yes, the Lord is vengeful to his enemies, but the Lord is good to his people. Know God's character. Friends, that's the most essential element of our existence to know the God who created us, to, to know what he's like. Uh, knowing the character of God more deeply ought to keep us from dismissing sin as trivial, as the Ninevites did, and ought to keep us from despairing in suffering as though we're hopeless, like the people of Judah were tempted to do. We need to know he's both wrathful and good. Saints, study God's character. Study God's ways to prevent you from sinning and to prepare you for suffering. If you need a good book to help you do that, to, to, to study God's character and to see how, how, how it affects real everyday life, just read through the Psalms. The Psalmists all masterfully show us how to wrestle through life's trials and sorrows and joys and temptations all while reflecting upon the full character of the Lord. Maybe start a habit of reading a psalm a day to help you better do that. We all need to know God's character. We also need to, number two, see God's fury. See God's fury. You know, there are, there are two types of knowledge. A disseminated kind of knowledge and a demonstrated kind of knowledge. 
That is, one that's learned by being told something, and the other that's learned by experiencing something. Now, I was the kind of child, unfortunately, for which being told something wasn't enough. Words weren't sufficient. I needed to experience firsthand, sometimes painfully, the reality of a thing. And so when my parents or grandparents told me that bucking against their authority or misbehaving in some way would bring punishment, I did not take their word for it. I needed to experience the other end of a belt or a switch to understand the reality and to learn the lesson. Some of us need to be shown the consequences of our actions. It's the same here. In chapter 1, through God, through the prophet Nahum, has revealed to the Ninevites his character. He's a just and jealous and vengeful God who promises to act in vengeance against them for their sin. But it's as if God knows that's not enough for them. And so in chapters 2 and 3, he graphically shows what will be Nineveh's fate. He graphically shows what he will do in crushing them. These chapters largely present something of a battle scene. They put us on the ground with God advancing against Nineveh, breaching its walls and ultimately bringing it down. This once dominant kingdom will be decimated. I mean, look there at at chapter 2, verse 1. Nahum says, the scatterer has come up against you. And just as Assyria has caused other peoples and nations to scatter before, to disperse before them, so now another would cause them to to scatter. Who is this scatterer? Well, as time would reveal, it would be the nation of Babylon. In 612 BC, Babylon would come and crush Assyria. But behind even Babylon's conquest was God. Notice verse 1 here talks about the scatterer coming up against you. But then let your eyes drop down to to chapter 2, verse 13. We read, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. And then look look over to to chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, So in one instance, the scatterer is against them. And in another instance, the Lord is against them. Well, which one is it? Well, it's both. You see, God often uses human means. Sometimes to bring salvation, like when he uses people like us to go tell others the good news about Jesus so they can be saved. And sometimes to bring destruction. Like when he uses human armies to crush rebels. When Assyria is attacked, when the conquering army comes up against them, the Lord wants them to remember that he is ultimately behind their demise. Don't attribute this to Babylon. Yes, they are against you, but remember what I say now. I am against you. He is wrecking them to restore his people. I mean, look at chapter 2, verse 2. Why is God bringing the scatterer and enemy up against Nineveh? Because the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. They had been plundered by Assyria, but God was now in the process of plundering the Assyrians. 
He would not let his covenant people suffer forever. And he takes us into the heart of the battle to show what he would do to Assyria, to, to Nineveh, through the army he would bring up against them. I mean, just look at the progressive scenes of the battle. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he tells the Assyrians to prepare for battle. Man or, or guard the city wall, for the scatterer is right at the gates. All right, so they haven't gone in yet. In verses 3 and 5, he describes the fierceness of these attacking enemies. The shield of their mighty men is red. Their clothes are scarlet, probably from the blood of all the previous enemies they've defeated in battle. Uh, this attacking army will be fierce. Their chariots rumble through the streets. Their spears are on full display. In verse 5, he, he remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. Uh, he there, in verse 5, probably refers to the, the commanding army uh, officer of this army. So eager is he to attack that he has to remember that he has other officers that he needs to delegate parts of the battle to. But it's not just the, the commander who's e eager to attack evil Nineveh. The entire army is. They, they stumble over each other as they hasten to go overthrow the city. They viciously approach. And then verse 6 tells us that they, they open the river gates. Those were the walls that were holding back the the river that surrounded the city of Nineveh. Uh, the water around them was, was meant to protect them from attackers. Uh, the water around them was meant to provide for them, to, to provide a, a water source into the city. Well, now that very water that was meant to protect them from death and to give them life is being used against them. Right? These attackers, in essence, opened the damn walls to, to break down the city gates and to flood the city. Once the gates have been destroyed, the city is destroyed. The end of verse 6 says, it's as if the palace melts away under the floodwaters. And all the people, they don't take up arms and fight to the finish. Instead, they are scattered. Their people and their goods stripped away. I mean, look there at verse 8. <laughs> There's a kind of great imagery of the emptiness of Nineveh. Verse 8 says, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. <laughs> a pool without water is useless. So is a city without people. Halt! Halt! Stop! Stop! The officials cry at the end of verse 8. But no one turns back. Instead, the whole city is plundered. And then look down to, to verse 10. What has become of this great empire, the, the, the grand city after this attack? It has become desolate. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. As a result, hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. And with no sympathy from God. Chapter 3 doesn't present a prettier picture. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, a city full of lies and plunder, a city that has viciously preyed upon others for so long. Now they are the prey. Again, look at the, the graphic battle scenes in chapter 3, verse 3. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, 
dead bodies without end. So much so that they stumble over all the dead bodies. This is a complete bloodbath, a complete slaughtering of the Assyrians. But again, it's not for nothing. Look at verse 4. It's all for the countless whorings of the prostitutes, the deadly charms or, or sorceries. The way Assyria has betrayed other nations with her whorings and other peoples with her, her sorceries. Assyria has not just played the role of the prostitute in, in spreading sexual immorality among the peoples, but in spreading spiritual infidelity among the peoples. As we saw with Sennacherib's words earlier, they disregarded the true and living God and worshipped other so-called gods attributed their success to them, even set up themselves, in essence, as gods. And what would be the consequence of all this gross sin? Or the consequence of all sin? Death. Heaps of corpses. Dead bodies without end. Death and shame. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. God talks about putting the Ninevites to shame. I will lift up your skirts over your face and the nations will look at your nakedness, at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. And then God just sort of taunts Nineveh starting in verse 8. Makes fun of them. Are you better than Thebes? It was an ancient city in, in Egypt. Thebes set by the Grand Nile River, thinking it was protected. Thebes had the, the help of the mighty Cushite and Egyptian armies around her. But verse 10, Thebes was exiled. And so will you be. Verse 11, you will go into hiding. Verse 12, your supposed mighty fortresses will be like weak fig trees that if shaken will fall. Verse 13, your supposed mighty troops will be like weak women. Not a dig on women, but just a general observation that women are generally weaker than men. Your strongest soldiers will be like little girls. And then God challenges the Assyrians again. Prepare for battle. Strengthen your forts, he says in verse 14. Verse 15, multiply your armies like locusts or grasshoppers. But it won't matter. You will be cut down with no relief. Drop down to the last verse of chapter 3, verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. And why? as your unceasing evil has been inflicted upon all other nations, so they will be happy when unceasing punishment comes upon you. God intends for the Ninevites to see the complete desolation that will be theirs, to see what he will do to them, unleash his full fury on them and not let up, bring them to complete destruction. It was an unimaginable outcome. 
because at the time of Nahum's writing, Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh, were at the height of their power. Nothing can possibly happen to us. Their pursuits of more and more power at the expense of preying upon more and more people, oppressing more and more people only seemed to pay off. They had riches. They had recognition. They had an expanding realm. But it would not last forever. God was coming. And he was going in for the kill. Notice in these three chapters, there's no offer of grace. No extension of forgiveness. No mention of mercy. Only judgment upon judgment upon judgment on Nineveh. Friends, that's instructive for us. There is a time when God will stop extending his hand to us in grace. Hebrews chapter 6 says, It is impossible in the case of those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and his power and yet still have chosen to turn away from him, it is impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. Their fate will only be judgment. The Ninevites had once tasted the goodness of the word of God as he granted them forgiveness and salvation from their sins from the mouth of Jonah. But they've subsequently turned away. And God now only offers certain and utter judgment from the mouth of Nahum. You see, you're not guaranteed that God will give you a second, or a third, or a 300th, or a 1,000th chance. He may reject you after one instance of rebellion. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17 says that Esau, after selling his inheritance, then desired his father's blessing. But he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, although he sought it with tears. He really cried out for it, but God had shut the door on his time to repent. You may not have a chance to repent of your rebellion against God. God may choose to just judge you, and he'd be right to do so as a just judge. One sin qualifies you for eternal judgment. And God's judgment is horrible. I mean, just look at what God unleashes on Nineveh here. We need to open our eyes wide and see it. Because that's what our rebellion against God will bring us as well. You, you see, Satan never tells this side of the equation when he tempts you to sin. He, he only presents the so-called rewards, right. not the certain retribution for your actions. He show you that fine woman with all her curves or that handsome guy with, with this charming personality. And he dangles all the possible delights that you might have if you spend some time with him or her, which might be true for a while. But what he don't show you is all the danger that will come as a result of your rebellion. He don't show you that God will wreck you. He fine with showing you all the possibilities of getting rich. 
by robbing Uncle Sam, by scheming family members, by selling drugs, by taking unethical jobs. And he showed you all the rewards you can get. Bigger houses, better clothes, financial freedom. But he don't show you none of the dangers of chasing riches. They become your God and bring you to destruction. Destruction from the jealous, vengeful, and only God. But God here means to be honest with us. To show us the real end of our sin. Satan gives you a half portion. There might be a little pleasure. God says that little pleasure will bring you eternal punishment. He's not uh, he, God is not sensationalizing details here when he talks about destruction. Right? We tend to look at the Bible and say, hell ain't going to be that bad. God ain't going to be that angry. He keeps on telling us in his words, right, the horror of hell. A small slice of what it looks like as he horrendously treats his enemies in battle. That's just a little picture of the full magnitude of his wrath unleashed on people. He's vividly showing us how terrible it is to experience his wrath. Look at all this fury that comes upon those who proudly reject and oppose God. And as you do, don't just think of what would happen to the Assyrians. Think of what should happen to us. All this fury should be ours. All this fury would be ours. Except that on the cross, Amen. Jesus Christ ate all this fury for all those who would trust in him. He tasted death for us. He drank the cup of God's wrath. He endured the pain of the cross, and he despised the shame of the cross so that we would not have to. He died the death that we deserve to die. But then he rose from the grave victorious over death and over the grave and over sin and over Satan, triumphing over them and putting them to open shame, just as God planned to put the Ninevites to open shame. Even in the resurrection of Christ, we see something of the message of Nahum. That God will utterly wreck all who proudly oppose him and ultimately restore all who patiently trust in him. Jesus wrecked all God's enemies by defeating them in resurrection and restored all those who trust in him to a right relationship with God. All of us today then are called to trust in Jesus Christ as a sign of trusting in God's care for us. We'll see to so the third and final point, trust in God's care. Amen. Trust in God's care. In many ways, this is a terrible book. A book of dark judgment. It's a terrible book unless you're Judah suffering under the terror of Assyria, of Nineveh. In that case, God's promise and vivid portrayal of destruction is good news for you, provides hope. For, for the people of Judah, as they looked on and only saw Assyria's power, their seemingly unstoppable forces crushing opponent after opponent, the fearful expectation was that they would be next. They would be totally destroyed in Assyria's path 
for world domination. The prospect of doom would have only brought gloom. But into this milieu of melancholy, God sends a messenger with a message to Judah. Total destruction is coming, and that should bring gloom, but not to you, but to your enemies. Not to you, but to my enemies. They are the ones who will be destroyed. As Judah would have read God's graphic description of the overthrow of Nineveh, the obliteration of Assyria, it would have strengthened their trust that our God will deliver us. It's as if God was meaning to reassure them of his provision for them with each battle image. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, who'd marched out with Abraham and his army of 318 men against five kings and their armies in Genesis. This Lord of hosts, this Lord of armies who marched out and, and routed the great Egyptian king and his army, crushing them in the Red Sea in Exodus. This Lord of hosts who marched out with the people of Israel, defeating great king after great king and great army after great army as the people of Israel took the land of Canaan and Joshua. This Lord of hosts who gave Gideon and his mere 300 men victory over the great Midianite army and judges. This Lord of hosts was again strapping on his battle armor and going out for his people. And as he had been so many times before, he would indeed be victorious. As Judah heard God's explicit double declaration to Nineveh in this book, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. They would have heard his implicit declaration to them. I am for you. And beloved, if God is for us, this God, in this book, the God who is jealous and vengeful and wrathful and good, if that God is for us, then who in the world can possibly be against us? God made a covenant with his people. I will be your God and you will be my people. He made a covenant with Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He made a covenant with David that one of his descendants would rule forever on the throne, and God always keeps his promises. He would not let his people be destroyed because he had a plan to be fulfilled. He would preserve his people and punish his enemies. Even with all the calamities surrounding them, Judah could trust that God cares. Judah could trust in God's care. And so with us. For those of us who put our trust in Christ, we've been grafted into God's people. We've become part of the covenant community. And we can trust God's covenant promises and his care for his covenant people. So even as so much injustice surrounds us, as so much evil envelops us, when it seems like God's people will be gobbled up by this sinful world system, crushed by the sinful world's opposition, God sends a message through a messenger, Nahum. God 
will utterly wreck all who proudly oppose him and ultimately restore all who patiently trust in him. So trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that gives us a better reality than even the world we see. We thank you for your word that shows us that sin will not prevail. Our sin or anyone else's sin. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes of faith to believe that you are for your people and against those who oppose you. And so keep us from opposing you and draw us closer to trust in you more and more each day. Lord, we pray that you would help our hearts, keep us from fearing in the midst of opposition and oppression. Lord, keep us from leaning wholly upon Christ, trusting, Lord, that you are for us in him and will never turn us away. Help our weak hearts, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.